This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. We are ready to rock and roll with another episode of the Power Producers Podcast. This is... The episode I've been waiting for for a little while, it's titled Technology or Treat Technology as a Team Member. And our guest today is my very good friend and coincidentally also a client of Florida Risk Partners, Mr. Scott Bean, the CEO of Diversacom Corporation. And Scott has some very interesting and unique views of managed services in a world where everybody's using them. And I feel like his message needs to be heard by everybody out there. So I asked him to come on, and he uh, was willing to come on and let us just hammer him for a little while with some questions. Scott, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Why don't you? uh, Why don't we get cranked up a little bit? Tell everybody, you know, a little bit about you, where your what your background is, where you came from, so that they understand that you are actually a credible person and not one of my uh, college buddies that I brought on here to pretend like he knows it. I understand. Uh, started in technology actually when I was in um, high school, which is a long time ago. I don't really want to admit that, but um, kind of morphed through uh, some opportunities to learn uh, IT technologies in the military uh, from 1986 to 1990, and then got out of the military and went back to college and got a degree in technology. From actually from a circuit board level, I really wanted to understand how the stuff worked, not just from a from an end user perspective. Uh, finished my degree, uh, got out with uh, summa cum laude, you know, graduated top of my class, and um, went out and went to work for a couple of different firms, uh, for a couple of technology companies there in the mid south. That's where I grew up in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and got the uh, got the call to move to Florida in nineteen ninety six. Came to work for a large uh, IT distribution company here in the in the Tampa Bay area, and then went to work for a um, a nationwide IT services company. I did that for about three years, uh, and after three years, I, I kind of felt like that I could do more on my own. So I started my own business in March of 2000, and uh, have been hammering away at it ever since. So we celebrated our 20 year anniversary last month. So. Um, Start out like most IT companies uh, using the, a traditional business model called break fix. Essentially, if you're if you're a customer with technology when it's broke, you would call me or someone like me, and I would come fix it, and I would charge you some outrageous fee. Um, That's kind of the business <laughs> model that had been around forever. 
and uh, sort of kind of invented by accounting firms and law firms in the in the uh, uh, early 1980s when my industry sort of began. Um, and the result ended up being that I felt that the relationship was very, very adversarial because I had real no incentive whatsoever to manage my client's technology so that it would work for them. You know, I only made money when it was broke, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, the moniker broke fix and my industry kind of operated that way for a long time. And around 2003, 2004, after having my own business for three or four years, uh, I, I really wanted to try to find a different way to, to deliver it services. And so I began to experiment with a business model that I copied from a global IT services company headquartered out of Germany called Siemens. Uh, Siemens has been around for a long, long time. And starting in the 1960s, they had pioneered the concept of fixed fee IT services. And their first customer was actually AT&T. And they managed all the set, the, uh, the computer systems for the AT&T's phone network for actually starting in the late 1960s when they digitized their phone system. Um, and they pioneered the idea of charging a fixed monthly fee. And I had an opportunity to sit down with, uh, with one of their senior project managers who had worked for the firm for about 17 years and advanced through the ranks. And uh, it actually had retired after 17 years, which is kind of hard to believe. But the German companies, you can do that. And I uh, learned a lot from him and took, tried to adopt their business model to a small business model. Like which we typically at that time served, you know, primarily companies. There were five million dollars or less in revenue, and it was very difficult. You know, Siemens their minimum monthly fee is ten thousand dollars a month, and obviously I didn't have any clients who were willing to pay that at the time. So it took me about three years through some trial and error and losing a lot of money and figuring it all out. And by two thousand and seven, I had perfected a business model that was a hundred percent services based. So we fired all of our hardware and software vendors in January of 2007 and stopped selling anything. And only thing, all of our revenue was derived entirely from delivering our services. And then we did it for a fixed monthly fee. And we did something else that was like absolutely groundbreaking at the time as we only had, our contracts were only 30 days in length. And um, most of my peers laughed at me and thought I was never going to make it. And um, today, well over half of IT companies are, are running their business using this model called managed services. So that was the history of it. And I've been doing managed services now for over 13 years. So that's me. You know, I, I think it's funny, man. I think anytime your peers laugh and think you're going to fail is what I use as motivation to guarantee that I'm going to succeed. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you want to, if you want me to succeed in anything at all out there, all you have to do is tell me I can't do it. Ah, that's kind of me too. I mean, it's like when people kept telling me, you, you know, you're, you're never going to make it. You're insane. You know, you what? You don't sell hardware and software? Are you nuts? And the thing is, my first two years when I first moved to Tampa uh, is I worked for the world's second largest distributor of technology. And I learned firsthand um, what that business was like and how thin the margins were, even then in the early, you know, right around the Y2K era, you know. It was just, you know, there was not a lot of money there. And, and you know, by the time I made the choice to stop selling equipment and software, Tiger Direct was just dominating the market. I mean, today, it's, they're owned by a company called PCM and Insight, and they're the world's leader in selling stuff. In fact, if you buy anything on Amazon today that's technology, I don't care if it's cabling or, you know, any network device or whatever, most likely you're buying it from Tiger Direct. And most people don't know that. So Amazon is Tiger Direct's, you know, pretty much storefront. 
And, you know, they both profited heavily from it. And, and the pricing is fantastic. I mean, I can't compete with that, you know, so it would make no sense tying up all my capital and, you know, two or 3% returns on your money. That's just, that just doesn't make any sense from a business perspective. No, and the problem too is you've got to have so much inventory of certain things on hand because you're, you know, not every one of your clients is going to be set up the same way. So now you have carrying costs for having stuff in exactly. case it's great. I mean, I, I, I think it's nuts. I mean, I think that the way that you do it is absolutely how it should be done. I mean, even in, even in the insurance world, I mean, if you think about it, accountants charge per hour, attorneys charge per hour. You know, I'm not going to go to my attorney and he's going to sell me a physical, tangible product. He's going to sell me his time. And they've mastered that. I mean, they definitely know how to run that meter. And I mean, even to a certain degree, what we do sometimes from a risk management consulting perspective, depending on the size and the complexity of the engagement, that ends up being an hourly fee because it makes more sense to the client. And I've always wanted, I've always wanted to be on a fee. You know, in our world, there's whether whether there is or there isn't, there can always be a perception that if you offer a product and your compensation is tied to that product in like in our case, if we're going to five or six different insurance companies and we have five or six different quote, different quotes come back, I don't want my client wondering, do they really give me the best deal or did they give me the one that was most advantageous for them? Is there a trip on the line? You know, do, does he get to qualify because he sells one more policy and goes somewhere else or whatever else? Now, for smaller companies, fee doesn't make any sense at all because it would be cost prohibitive to a smaller company. But when we deal with some of our larger commercial engagements, almost 100% of those are on a service fee arrangement so that my client is paying me directly. We net the commission out of the placement and I have no interest whatsoever one way or the other as to which insurance carrier that client chooses. And the nice part is they know that, right? So even though I would never do anything ethically that would be bad for my client and advantageous for me, it takes that, it removes all doubt of that. And they know that when I go to them with a recommendation and say, hey, it's going to be ten grand more a year for you to have this, but you really, really need it. They know I don't make a dime off of that $10,000, so I must be really giving them the absolute best advice possible, which is what they should be paying me for. That's precisely why we stopped selling hardware and software. I mean, at the end of the day, we had to make a decision. Do we want to be an extended sales force for a hardware and software vendor, or are we really concerned about helping our clients maximize their profitability and productivity with technology. And by selling equipment, my clients would have the exact same response that you just said a minute ago. They didn't know whether I'm selling equipment to subsidize my engineering services fees or if I'm just giving away my engineering services fee so I can make an exorbitant you know, markup on the equipment and technology. Well, and I mean, even even to your point, Scott, the margins are not there. Right? No, they're not so, there anymore. So you, know? you, you couldn't really mark it up that much. Only if so you're selling something that's highly specialized. And then, and then in that market, you can, what are you doing? Are you in business to, to market and sell somebody else's product? Or are you in business to build and engender trust with your, with your clients so that you can build a long-term, mutually beneficial, win-win, profitable relationship? And I fundamentally, that's where I came to. It's like, well, why am I doing this? And if I'm in business just to make, you know, vendor A, B, and C a bunch of money, okay, then basically I should just become their employees, 
But if I'm here to build something that's long-term, that creates a profit center for me, and also empowers my clients to be more profitable as well, then that's a win-win relationship. And that's absent of any vendor because vendors come and go. And, and, you know, whatever their market conditions are and whatever the spiff of the month is or here, you know, you ought to sell widget X, Y, and Z and, you know, this flux capacitor, whatever, do icky, you know, sell this and make a lot of money off of it this month. I, my customer doesn't need that. Well, it, it doesn't matter, you know, sell it anyway. I mean, and I would get that all the time from my vendors. And that's when the light bulb went off. It's like, you know, I was kind of naive when I first started this because I was an engineer. You know, we lived and died by the technology and we trusted the stuff because we felt like it was pretty phenomenal stuff. But, you know, from the business world, you know, if you don't build and trust relationship between yourself and your clients, then realistically, I mean, who are you really trying to serve? And that was my question. And I chose my clients. That's what I that's what I did. So ultimately, it's paid off handsomely. I mean, I was speaking with an, a gentleman this morning about our structure and our business and you know, I'll share with them that our entire revenue this, you know, in the last, you know, 13 years has been derived entirely from our services. Because when he asked me, well, what's your gross this year? And I told him, he says, well, okay. I said, yeah, but that's entirely services. I, I didn't sell anything. He said, really? No, I don't sell anything. I don't sell any technology. He's like, wow, that's a lot, you know? Yeah. So, but that's it. That's the way it works. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because people are going to always, I mean, it's a, to me, it's a false uh, inflation of revenue, right? If, it you're, is. if you're selling this stuff, your margin's not in the stuff, but it makes your top line look better, right? So if you go down and look at the income statement, oh yeah, well, you, you, you're, you know, truthfully, if you were measuring your success off of what your annual revenues are, you could probably be four or five times the size of what you are right now. But the difference is your gross profit is really where everybody – I mean, your your revenue is where everybody else's gross profit starts. That's correct. Right? And today, if you look at companies, like there, there are quite a few managed services providers around the country that are they're up for sale right now, you know, for a lot of reasons, primarily because of the – of the change and shift in our industry because of what the cybersecurity threat has done and how it's essentially made my industry now the cybersecurity police force for, for businesses in the U.S. And to be able to do that effectively is going to require significant investment for managed service providers to retrain their team and make some significant investments in some technology to be able to service their clients. And then the, the, you know, the guys who are in their late 60s, I mean, our late 50s and early 60s have been running businesses for 15, 20, 30 years. They're not willing to make the sacrifice. And so they're selling. And when you look at their costs or their businesses and how they're being evaluated, I, I've looked at a lot in the last year. And those that are services only, they get a huge multiplier. I mean, I've seen them out there selling for anywhere from, you know, three and a half to 10 times their total revenue if they're 100% services. But if you see a hybrid, you know, one out there that's selling, let's say, 50% of their revenue is coming from material and hardware and software, and the other 50 cents coming from services, you'll see their multiplier be as low as 1.5 to 3, just simply because they know that the companies that are spending, getting that, deriving that much of their top line from selling equipment, their clients probably aren't really recurring revenue clients. They're one-offs or they're project-based. So in my case, all of my revenue comes entirely from recurring revenue every month. And that's the, that's the model that I started in 2007 that everybody thought I was nuts. And today it's like, oh, okay. Matter of fact, when I started my business, the term managed services didn't even exist. 
I, I'd spent a lot of money with a with a really really good local uh, marketing and communications firm, actually trying to figure out, oh, how do you how do I market myself? And we couldn't come <laughs> up with a name. What's and yeah? We, what's my name? How do I define that? We came <laughs> up with this really nutty name called I Omnibox. You know, because everything at the time was I, right? So it's like let's call it I Omnibox. So it's like, it's like, and we did that for about a year and a half, and it went absolutely nowhere. And then we then we come up with this idea of trying to to uh, attach a person's image. We went out and we were supposed to look through about 200 photographs of professional models here in town. And we found this lady who just, and look, you looked at her, you'd send a gender. I'd trust her. You know, if you just look at her picture, I would yeah, trust you, her. You, look, you looked at that picture and it screamed, I Omnibox. I Omnibox, you know, and we called <laughs> it Grace. Go you know, I mean, it was crazy, right? It's like, it was, the whole thing was nuts. But, but again, managed services term sort of came around around 2008 um, that's when the MSP Alliance was formed in Orlando, which again, this is another interesting thing. The whole concept of managed services was actually in the name and the marketing was birthed out of Orlando. I mean, of all places, Orlando, right? So, um, but Florida has always seems to have been kind of a hot box and a tender box for the development of technologies. Most people don't know this, but the first cable modem was deployed in Tampa, Florida, in the whole world. The first DSL modem was developed and developed and deployed here in Tampa, Florida. The whole planet. The first fiber optic internet to a home developed right here in Florida, you know, right here in Tampa. So most people have no idea. They don't know that. Our telecommunications infrastructure here in Florida is so young. I grew up in the Midwest where the phone company had been there for, you know, 90 years. You know, <laughs> and here's, there's places here in Tampa, literally, that 10 years ago, there was no telecom at all. I mean, when I moved to Florida, there were less than 3 million people in the state. Today, there's over 21 million. I mean, it's just exploded growth. And, you know, all, and when these people moved here, essentially they had to build the houses and the structure for them when they, after they got here. So, so we, we're blessed, you know, I kind of, that's one thing that's really nice too, about what's going on with the whole the coronavirus, you know, with, uh, for the forcing of businesses to embrace telecommuting as a, as a day-to-day operational requirement uh, here in Tampa, it's actually very easy to do. The telecommunications infrastructure is there for pretty much anybody to work from home as if they're actually in their office. But in most places around the country, they still don't have that. So, but. yeah, I want to I want to expand on that in a second. But I know Kyle had a question for you. Yeah, I, I wanted to find out when you engage with a prospect, you know, how do you determine if you're going to work with them or not? That's a really good question. Uh, uh, and this might come across as being somewhat, um, you know, well, I'll just say it. Uh, we, we only really do business with A player companies. We really do. We have a, we're very, very selective about the clients we even prospect. Um, we're very, very discriminatory. And it's not because we think we're better than anyone else. It's just primarily because we have developed a business model that demands that our clients be very well-run businesses. So uh, companies that have a management team and who are more focused on actually doing work inside the business as opposed to running the business, they're not a good fit for us. Because we're focusing on how we can make our clients more profitable. And because in order to do that, you know, when you're talking to the CEO or the CFO or the senior manager of the company, you know, they got to know how they make money. And I'm surprised. I I was very, very naive when I started my business. I thought uh, the companies that I had out there and admired and known, oh, these guys must be really, really good business people. I found that the most of the people that I met with, they were were lousy business people. I mean, they were really, really good at their trade. But as far as running a business, they were terrible. 
So what one of the things we do very clear, we do a ton of research on every prospect. We look, we look them up and we, we find out all of the financial data we can because there is quite a bit out there. And then we ask some very, very pointed questions, usually within the first 10 minutes of our initial prospect meeting. Uh, one of the first questions we ask uh, is, well, what's your cost of business per hour? How much does it cost for you guys to be in business every hour? And if I get that, you know, deer in the headlights look from the prospect, that's usually telling me that I probably want to do business with that guy. If he can't tell me how much it costs for him to keep his lights on every hour in his business, he's not managing his business. One of the biggest dangers I've found that businesses try to do with technology is they try to use technology as a substitute for proper management. And you just can't do that. You can't manage people with technology. You can empower your employees and your team members to become better and more productive with technology, but you cannot use the technology as a substitute for good business management. And if you don't have a good plan, then you can't use technology. If you don't understand how your function of your company works, what the processes are that your team uses to actually generate your revenue, then there's no way I can help you improve those processes because that's all that technology does. So we go through a pretty rigid process of making that analysis, and we can I can eliminate a prospect pretty quickly by just asking usually two or three questions. So nice. Now you've got to tell us what those two or three questions are. <laughs> uh, the, hanging. Yeah. So so the biggest one is what's it cost for you guys to be in business every hour? And you right. know that's kind of intrusive. Most most people they may even know that, but then um, because they don't have any trust with me, you know they don't know us. You know, usually we're referred. Almost all of our prospects are referrals from others, um, and you know the cold calling prospects are the hardest because there's no trust. And I've got to establish that trust very quickly because I mean, and then plus a lot of times too, uh, I get one or two reactions. I get the dare in the headlights, like how dare you ask me that because they really don't know the answer. Or they'll look at me with complete amazement, and I, I, here's the response I usually get from the ones that I really want to do business with. Man, I've never had an IT guy ever ask me that before. That's the best of it. And I, that's, I mean, that right there that says, oh, that's good. That's a good answer right there because they're thinking about that. Yeah, and the longer that they talk to you, the, they're working in their head, in their mind. Okay, I can only talk so long to stall before he expects me to give him a number, so let me figure out exactly. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So that's the biggest question we ask. Uh, and then I want to know, you know, how their, how their company is structured. Are they debt financed or are they equity financed? And what I, what I want to know is, I mean, are you basically just living on the edge every month and you're taking, you know, you're basically financing every aspect of your business or are you actually running your business, you know, from your, you know, growing your company? I want green and growing companies. I, I don't want ri- ripening and rotting businesses. I mean, if, if if some people will like a lifestyle business and they just use the business as a way to make a living and that's it, that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you find those kind of companies, they're not growing and they're not reinvesting in their company and they're not thinking about ways to be, to become more efficient and to grow more efficiently. So ultimately what ends up happening is that if I try to engage with them, I'm going to be offering them solutions that's that's specifically designed to grow their business. And if they don't want to grow, then now we've got a huge conflict. It's adversarial. So finding that out, you know, what, what is your plan? I ask them, hey, what's, what's, your, what's your two, three-year plan? What do you plan on being good? And the numbers don't really matter to me. I just want to know that they're thinking in terms of, yeah, I want to grow my company. You know, I want to take care. I'm thinking about how I can be agile and, and be different. Because, again, if they're not thinking from that perspective, anything I offer them is not going to click. It's not going to resonate with them. And then the last question I usually ask them is, what's your budget? What are you, what are you budgeting for managing technology? Uh, and again, very, very few companies know that number. 
And I can give them numbers. I can say, look, absent of me and my company, what I charge you, here's what the National Association of Certified Public Accountants says that a business in your industry should be allocating as a total percentage of your total revenue that you should be allocating to managing your IT every year. And the number varies anywhere between, it's the industry range, but it's anywhere between eight and a half to 14% of total sales is what you need to be spending on tech. And that would include not just, you know, service fees to fee, to be to IT company, but that would be your, your, your capital expenditures, your internet costs, your web hosting, all that kind of stuff. It's kind of an aggregate. But um, I try to literally work with companies that, or have been in business for at least 10 years, um, because then by that point, um, the percentages don't lie. I mean, the, the National Department, the uh, U.S. Department of Labor has some very, very clear stats out there that show that you know, literally 85% of the businesses in this country, you know, they don't survive past the, past the fourth, fifth year. They just don't make it. Right. So of that 15%, half of them are going to be gone by the ninth year. And of that last, you know, half of the, you know, the, the last chunk, uh, by the 11th year, there's only going to be about 3% of the original ones that started. So I call it the 3% club. And sure. um, so those are the ones really I, I like to do business with the most. They, they've what's, got money and uh, they're low risk averse. What's the biggest obstacle that you'll run into or, or even objection really that, that you'll get when you're dealing with prospects? <laughs> Great question. Um, my industry has deservedly earned the reputation of a sleazy used car salesman. Mm-hmm. Hey, we resemble that remark. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's just the truth. Uh, again, a lot of it boils back to the the you know the decades long uh, business model of break fix. Um, yeah, and it's and a lot of people aren't aren't well versed in it either, so they don't they have they no don't idea. Know, and people can take advantage of them, you know, more easily. I guess. Well, let me let me tell you what I learned very on in my industry. Uh, one of the one of the, the probably the most accurate, short, descriptive term of how to make money and technology and IT for the last, well, since the early 1980s is where there's mystery, there's margin. And I mean, and in the IT, it's a big black box to most business owners. They don't have a clue how this stuff mm-hmm. works. And and that's, that's in and of itself the biggest problem. And that should tell every IT owner, every owner of every IT services company in the world, if the, if the, if your customer believes that what you are offering is this massive, mysterious black box, then the absolute first thing you've got to work on is building some trust. So if you don't, if you don't engage with them or work with them or deliver your services or, or, or just offer the way you function or, or, or communicate with them in a manner that engenders and builds trust, then all you're doing is perpetuating that, you know, use car salesman, you know, mindset. And it takes a lot of work. My, my lead time. I mean, I would love to be able to say that I close every prospect. I don't. But I tell you, every single awesome client I have, most of them took me more than six months to win over as a client because I literally have to educate my clients, my prospects on how to buy from me because they don't understand because I'm an honest guy. I mean, I and the thing is that what I have to get them to realize that I'm, I'm, when I'm telling them the truth is that I only make money when they make money because we've charged a flat monthly fee for our services. So whether my team spends five minutes or 500 hours doing the work that we committed to do, we still charge the same amount of money. So the only way my team makes money is if your my client's infrastructure is never broken, if it's doing exactly what they expect it to do. So in many ways, I am like an insurance company. You know, you pay me to come in and create this infrastructure 
that makes your team more productive, reduces your cost, and has a top line as it has a direct impact on the profitability of your business in a positive way. And my job is to make sure that that always does that. So, and it's not an easy task. Most businesses operate on a three to five year business cycle. So they'll make major decisions once every three to five years. And that's for everything, you know, buying new stuff, hiring new growth, marketing, IT, it really doesn't matter. So when we go in with every client we've picked up and I knock on wood with everyone except for one in the last nine years, we have completely had to go in and completely realign their technology infrastructure because what they had was a train wreck because patched together. There was no idea. There was no concept of making the technology a slave to the business. Uh, our, our perspective and the way we are able to, to explain this to our clients is we literally treat the technology in your business as a virtual employee. I literally have my clients write a job description for the technology as if they were hiring a team member. So if you if you hire a receptionist or hire an operations person in your company, you have very, very specific tasks that you expect that person to do and measurable performance metrics to see whether or not they're meeting your expectations and being profitable for your firm. Well, I have my prospects and my clients do the exact same thing for technology. I don't have a write a job description. Look at your technology as this one holistic black box, and you're going to give it a job. What do you want that job to be? And what are the job descriptions for that? And what are the measurable metrics that you want to use to determine whether or not you should continue to pay them? Because essentially, that's what they're doing. They're paying me to make that black box work. So that's something that a business owner can get their head wrapped around. And yeah, it's very cool easy for them to grasp. Because they right. do that every day already, right? So I take that mystery out. And the, where there's mystery, there's margin. I kicked out to the curb, and I completely dismystify that opportunity. And now when I do that, I have interpreted value for them. I have rendered the value. And then I'll just go in and wow their pants off and show them that I can do everything that they said that I can do. And if they ask me if the technology can do this and this and this, I'll say, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Or in some cases, they'll say, well, I need the technology to do this, 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 and this. I said, fine, but this is what's going to cost you. Now, does that make sense? And I, again, I go back and use the analogy of hiring a person. You might want a person to be to do the work of a, a super amazing receptionist, you know, and you've and the market says that that person should get paid forty eight thousand dollars a year. But then you get a person that walks in the door and says, well, I can't be a receptionist for less than ninety seven thousand dollars a year. Are you going to hire that person? Well, the answer would be no, because your budget's forty eight. So when it comes to technology, it's the same way. I want my technology to do this, this, and this. Okay, it'll cost you three times what you're willing to budget. Do you want to do that? Well, no. Okay, well, then we're not going to do that. So, And so, again, it's that honesty. And since we're divorced from selling any hardware and software, we are completely and totally unbiased. And when they ask us a question about something, we give them a complete straight answer. So, you know, the vendors hate that about me sometimes because I'll say, well, yeah, this product does X, Y, and Z, but this part of it, it's just terrible. You don't want it. And he's like, no, no, don't say that. But, again, I, I'm, I'm interested in my clients. So. Yeah, you know, I think a couple of things that I have as thoughts. The first one is, to your point about going in and having things patched up and it's a train wreck, you know, I think that the margins are so thin. I, Scott, one of the things I admire about you is the fact that you don't, you don't worry about this being a measuring contest, right? You're not worried about what your top line looks like against all of the other MSPs that are in town even though it would stand on its own very, very well, I think a lot of these companies get fixated on, you know, let me get to a million, let me get to 5 million, let me try and get to 10 million. And such a small percentage of them actually get there, number one. But the ones who do 
are sacrificing margin for top line sales. So the profitability on a company that's three or four times the size of a smaller one with a more focused objective, they're actually putting less money on the bottom line than the smaller, more well-run managed services providers. Part of the issue with that is that you sacrifice uh, your ability to pay people, provide good benefits, and retain the talent that you should have. And it's like a revolving door. I can tell you from firsthand experience that you never know who you're going to get on the other end of the line. And then as a consumer, as a purchaser of a service, one of the most frustrating things in the world for me, regardless of what that service is, is when there's not consistency in who I'm dealing with, number one. But number two, when I have to be the one to educate that person who is supposed to be the expert on the specific needs of my organization and things that have been done in the past because they're the flavor of the month. The other guy left for another dollar an hour somewhere else or whatever. And I mean, it drives me absolutely nuts. So I, you know, kudos to you for staying in your wheelhouse, man, because to me, there's no joy in getting big if you can't deliver and, and give an awesome client experience. And what I tell you is, in my opinion, with the tech, and I know that your firm is different, with other technology companies that I've had experience with, they have no general understanding of client relationships at all. They do not understand what it's like to provide an exceptional client experience. Why? Because all they're worried about is whether or not they get the ticket closed out. That's it. These companies are so concerned about close rates on tickets and making sure that all of this stuff is tracked and they're monitoring every metric, thinking that that means they're providing excellent service when all it's doing is it's turning people that have the ability to provide a human connection into robots that are focused on getting tickets closed out. And that's all. Yeah, and it's interesting. I I I am I participate in four different groups, professional groups that are specifically targeted to help my industry grow and thrive. And these particular groups are focused almost entirely on managing your business. And not only managing an, an IT business is what I'm talking about, an information technology services business, and, and managing for profit and for growth. And, you know, metrics, performance metrics are, are top of the line. If you can't measure it, then you can't, you know, you can't grow. You, you got to measure things, right? And what is so amazing is when you look at all of these companies, all four of them, they're, and they're all from four different parts of the country, and they have four different sets of, you know, backgrounds and histories, and the, the people who started the companies, they, they I, I can't see any connection between them, you know, back in when they first started their companies. It's amazing how all of them have the same emphasis on not specifically hardcore numbers about, you know, profit, gross profit and whatnot, net profit, et cetera, but they do focus on the client experience. In fact, the biggest metric that they focus on is coming up with a way to try to measure that client experience and get direct feedback. And you'll, you'll notice that the companies out there who are in the services business uh, where, where you get off a support call, whether it's your insurance company or your pest control company or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Those that come back and say, well, I'm going to send you a survey. Would you please, would you please rate my service today? No. Because so, and, and I was like, 
well, no, I'm not going to rate your service. I mean, you know, I mean, that's not my job to rate your service. You know, you, you've got to figure out how to serve me, you know, and asking me to rate your service today. I mean, that's first, there's no relationship. First of all, you don't even know me. I had one phone call. And then secondly, I mean, it would be completely, you know, it would be completely anecdotal at best. Don't you know I'm the creator of iOmnibox? I mean, I don't have that. <laughs> that's right. It's like, I mean, you know, it's like, so it's, it's, that's, that is really the toughest part. I mean, in managing an IT, people ask me, what's the hardest part about running an IT company? Really knowing whether my comp- customers are happy with me or not. And, and so in my case, when my clients talk to my support team, there's a relationship and they all know us, all of us. And so, when I ask them to rate, I never ask my guys to ask my clients. I never do that. I'll, I'll go and ask them and I'll send out emails and I'll, I'll just call them sometimes. And, hey, look, I see you had a, a pretty tough situation here over the last couple of days over this issue X, Y, and Z. Did my guys take care of you? Say, oh, man, they were awesome. I said, here's the big thing I tell my guys. If you can do this one thing and do it consistently every single day, if you could just not talk down to the customer, just don't do that. I, the last two clients that we have brought on board, that was the number one thing they hated about their IT company. In fact, one of the clients that I brought on board, he turned out to be one of my absolute best clients, okay? They, they said that in the last six months of their relationship with their previous IT company, their entire employee staff hated calling them so much that they just wouldn't call. And, what, and of course, the IT company thought that they were doing a fantastic job because they got no support calls. But what that happened was, is every time they would call, they would feel talked down to or feel like they were idiots or stupid or, you know, because I get this constantly, even because I'll, I'll work on the help desk sometime with my team. And, and I, I invariably, even my own clients say, well, I know this is a stupid question. I say, no, I mean, any question you ask me is not stupid. If, it, if it's something is, with the technology is keeping you from being in maximum productivity, that's not a stupid question. I want you to ask me that question because if there's a way I can fix that for you. I'm going to do it. And immediately they're like, oh, it's so nice you know, that I can ask a question and don't feel like I'm an idiot. You know, Because, again, the black box, they all feel like it's the black box. And so that's the single part of my industry that gets the least amount of training. I, I look at guys all the time to try to hire them and bring them on my team. And I'll get all this big, long litany of certifications from Microsoft or from Cisco or from, you know, name it or whatever. And I got, you know, CompTIA, all this stuff. And it's all great. It's all great technical competency. But uh, then I'll ask him, I says, well, um, did you take a speech and debate class while you're in college? And they'll say, well, no. Why would I do that? I said, because you need to learn how to communicate with people. I right. mean, your job here is not to fix the computer. Your job is to understand what this person needs the technology to do so that they can become as maximum proficiently as they can Mm -hmm. become maximum productivity. And if you can't communicate effectively with that person or or build some trust or get them to open up and ask the questions where they feel like it's just a stupid question, then you're never going to be able to do that job. And, you know, one of the best ways to learn that is take a debate class in college. I mean, that's brutally, I mean, you want to learn how to talk to people, take a debate class, you know? Hey, listen, I'm going to tell you what, man, I, I like it when people think creatively and how to solve issues like that, right? So a book, Scott, you know that I read, I know you read, I recommend stuff that I'm reading all the time to you. And one of the books that I've read recently, and I've actually referred to it on a couple of podcasts, I'm sure that everybody listening is going to get sick of me 
talking about what a great book this is. But the name of the book is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Oh, great book. So, and and so what I love about what Voss talks about is when he went to the supervisor to get the next opening, he was just a regular agent and he wanted to get into negotiating. Great story. And and, and the lady came in and and just basically said, Nope, not happening. Thanks for coming by. Don't ask again. And he was just like perplexed and couldn't understand. And, you know, to, to not ruin the whole book for everybody sort of fast forward. Basically what she told him is, you want to learn how to negotiate? Go take a job at the suicide hotline. Go answer calls at the suicide hotline and learn how to talk to those people and how to communicate with those people. And then when you've done that for a while, come back and talk to me. That's exactly sure. what he did. <laughs> and, and you know what? He did it. He he was very transparent in the book that, you know, there were times when he thought he had had an awesome call and his supervisor's like, it's the worst call I've ever heard in my yeah. life. You know? yeah, that was really good. Yeah. You know, and, and he goes back to the lady and he ends up getting the job to become the next hostage negotiator because he did he did that. I think that there's a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily seem like on the surface it translates into what you should do to become a better business person. But there's a ton of examples like that. And that's one that resonates with me just because I recently read the book. But you know, wow. I mean, no different than do you have a speech? Have you taken a speech or debate class or have you ever been part of Toastmasters or anything like that it is huge. And, and again, the other thing I would say, and, and I know Kyle probably has another question in a second, but, you know, the other thing that I would tell you is you've got to stay connected, man. I mean, you is the leader of your organization. I expect it from all of my production people, but I also expect it from myself. I was dealing with a service provider that provides a service to my business that we had had problems with. The problems were well-documented. They were ongoing. They were at times severe. And I went and was at a social event and the guy that was the owner, the the CEO, because, you know, you can't just be employed by a company. You have to classify yourself with an important title, you know, and and he was, I was obviously well beneath him, you know, uh, to even have a conversation, but, he said, hey, uh, you know, I noticed I noticed I've been looking at things from a high level. I don't really get involved in your account, uh, but you've been having some problems. And I, I trust we got all that taken care of. And I, and, and I don't know if he thought that I was just going to, you know, say, oh, you know, yeah, everything's great or whatever. I said, actually, to be perfectly honest with you, no, it's not taken care of. And the reason is because you're not involved in my account. You need to figure out when you're going to start running your company and taking care of people who spend money with you and, and, and make sure that your people are doing what they say or you're not going to have a company. That's my two cents. Merry Christmas. I mean, (laughs) but it it was, it was at their Christmas party. I was invited as a client to their Christmas party. And I mean, I, the guy just sort of looked at me, but I mean, you can't ever, I don't care who you are. I don't care how big your company is. If you get to the point where you're disconnected with what's going on, I granted, if you're the CEO of a fortune 500 company, that's a different story. We're not, none of us here are, and very few people listening to this, are going to be that guy. You got to stay connected, man. That speaks to your point earlier about, you know, building that trust and that credibility. You know, I, um, I think that's huge. I, I did want to go back um, and, and, and touch on this because I thought it was pretty cool when you brought up, uh, you, you know, asking the, the prospects to create a job description. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the reaction there? I got to imagine it's all over the board. So it's, it's, it's a mixture between absolute, shock right and and relief because by by me doing that 
it's probably the very first time that any IT professional has ever asked uh, a manager or a C-level executive for one of their clients to do something that they could actually do. Hmm. So again, it goes back to that mystique building exercise. I, I, I can vividly remember a day, a, a day I was in training with this company I went to work for here in the Tampa Bay area that is, you know, the largest, well, is the second largest distributor of technology in the world at the time. I can vividly remember a day when I was in a training session and um, the trainer was telling me that one of the ways that I could help sell more of their product is to make it more vague, <laughs> make it more scary. And basically his, his whole deal was just scare the crap out of them. So they'll have to buy it. You know, you just get, you gotta, you gotta engender so much fear in their mind that they just gotta have this widget. And if they don't have this widget, then their whole world is going to unravel before their eyes from a technology perspective. And I remember it's like, well, that's about as unethical as you can get, you know, and, but, but that was their mindset. And that was the accepted methodology for getting people to sell more product in the company. And I just, that, that, that's like, that was kind of the first day. I mean, I'd probably been with the organization about six months. That, that day is when I started looking for a new job. It took me about 18 months to you know, find one that I liked. But uh, but that was it. I mean, I was like, man, I'm I'm tired of this. You know, I'm so sick and tired of people thinking that the only way they can engage with technology is they have to be terrified of it, and that like I'm supposed to be like some superhero with a cape, you know, and tight shorts to come in and save the day. You know, I'm the only guy with the magic kryptonite, you know, that can make the magic black box work. I, I just I hated that. So I always try to find ways that I can I can empower my clients to be part of the process and give them a sense of, of, con, you know, control. I don't want them to think that I have the keys to the kingdom because I don't, this is your business. I want to see you thrive and grow because I only make more money when you make more money because our, 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 our fees are directly tied to the number of employees that the client has. So if they're growing and adding staff, then we make more money, you know? And so they're obviously if they're doing it right, they're making more money. Again, it's a win-win relationship. But and what what ends up happening is that by going through these exercises and empowering my clients to feel like and know that they are in control of the relationship and can manage it well, they just continue to give more control away to me. So I get to the point right now with most of my clients, if I if they need to buy a widget, you know, XYZ widget, and this widget might cost four or five thousand dollars. I'll go up to him and said, look, I know your cash flow probably is not great right now, but you need to buy widget XYZ, and here's why. And I just list it out. And nine times out of ten, they're going to say, okay, all right, we'll do it. Tell me what I need to do, and, and I'll connect them with somebody to buy stuff with. Because, again, we'll fulfill that role as a chief information officer slash tech, chief technology officer of going out and finding the vendors where they can buy stuff for them, help them negotiate the price or whatever. But then, you know, then they, they do their thing and buy it and deliver it, and then we, we make it work. So – but it's a trust. It's just whatever it does it take to build more trust. And it's not easy. You know, it's, it's, it's an exercise. It's a lot harder for my technical guys than it is for me because I do this every day. But for them, you know, they're, they're so deep in the weeds of technology sometimes. It gets kinda, it's kind of hard for them to disconnect from it and think about, gee, I'm an end user now. But they're good at it. They, you know, I, and I'm always coaching them on it. So, but they get better every day.
So. I think it's interesting. I watched a little short video on one of the social platforms the other day. I don't remember where it was, but it was speaking to how you know who to prospect or how you should be prospecting. And the guy was using the example of he was a toaster salesman. He was gonna. He had the biggest and the best toaster that had all kinds of timers and buttons. And it I've could heard this do, one. This is good. It, yeah, it, it could do four different. It could do four different slices of toast at one time. You could program it. You could do this. You could do that. And so he decided when he got this this new toaster product, he was going to sell the first place he was going to go sell it to his grandmother, because he knew that his grandmother had an old toaster and it was manual. And only one side of it worked. And even that side only lightly toasted the bread. And so he walked in and he said, Grandma, I want to sell you the toaster. I I think you need one of these toasters. Look at all of these things it can do. She said, get out of here with your toaster. I don't need a new toaster. And he pushed back and he said, but you really need a new toaster. He goes, you know, everybody who makes toast should have this toaster. And she said, listen, I don't need it. I mean, it went back and forth for a while. And the, the whole moral of the story was this. You don't need to go market your product to everybody who makes toast. You need to market your product to somebody who needs a new toaster. And the reason why the grandmother wouldn't buy from her own grandson is because there was only one of her. So it didn't matter that both sides didn't work. And she happened to like light toast exactly the way that it came out of her toaster. So, you know, I mean, we could think of a million different things like that, but so many times salespeople get the cart before the horse and they, I can't even tell you in my peer group when people walk in and they're immediately diagnosing the problems that people have and solving them by the sale of a product before they've ever even asked their first question. You know, they, they have an idea of oh, well, what you need is you need to have this particular insurance product. Well, why do you think that I need that? You know, never stop to think about that, right? You know, you don't go in and ask open-ended questions. And that's one of the things that I always do my absolute best to do. I ask short, easily digestible questions, but they're open-ended because I want to learn more from listening. I don't, Look, I've been doing this a long time, man. I don't need to prove to anybody that I know what I'm talking about. They'll figure it out when I ask my questions, not how I answer them. And you've, you're doing the exact same thing. When you walk in and say, you know, give me a job description. What does it cost for you to operate, you know, for a day, for a week, for a month? Any of those things. People look at me like I'm nuts or they look at me like, holy cow, this guy has got a completely different perspective on how to do things. I'm going to I'm going to listen to what he has to say. Thankfully for me, most of the time it's the latter, you know, but at the end of the day, I think there's so many people out there that get caught in, you know, Got to, got to, got to sell this. Got to sell this. Got to sell this. If you just sit back and wait and listen to the answers, you're going to figure out exactly where you need, where your entry point is. And you know what? It might be six months, just like you said. I've had accounts that I've romanced for a year, two, two and a oh, half yeah. years before they ever became my client. I'm perfectly fine with that. But I think that we get so many, so much pressure put on us, you know, in some organizations where they end up never having an opportunity with that client instead of just not right now. My favorite, my favorite uh, author um, and authority on building an effect, an effective trust based selling system is a guy named Todd Duncan. And he has a fantastic book about that. And uh, 
one of my one of his one of my favorite quotes out of his book is he says the key to selling is not selling it's providing and the key to providing is knowing in advance what to provide so before you ever offer anything you need to find out exactly what it is that they truly want and and like in my world 9 times out of 10 it's got nothing to do with technology technology can be an enabler for what it is they want but trying to unearth what it is they really want. That's why I do the job description. Because if I can get them to write out a job description of what they, what this black might, this magic black box will do for them, then I can know very quickly whether or not I can satisfy their desire. Sometimes it might be just as simple as, well, you know, if I could just get another 10 minutes of productivity out of my, out of my team a day, I, that would vastly improve my top line. Okay. Well, I can fix that. I mean, I, there's two or three things I can do immediately to make that happen. Uh, and they don't need to, they don't even care what it is. They just want to know, can I do it? And can I speak to them in their terms about that? And that's the magic of it. And, and it's, it, it's a purposeful, disciplined, uh, persistent approach to asking questions. Like David says, you know, ask those open-ended questions to find out exactly what it is that you really want to do. Because if the relationship is not mutually beneficial, why have it? I mean, I don't want to be involved in an adversarial relationship with anybody. I got enough of those already. I don't need any more. So that's the way it is. Dude, I don't care what you guys say. If my grandma does not buy my toaster, I'm going to be pissed. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, by all accounts, man, you seem like a pretty regimented dude. And everybody that we get on here that's successful has some sort of daily routine. What's yours look like? Oh, man. Uh I'm usually up four four thirty. Uh, I usually go out and take a walk for an Sounds hour. Horrible. <laughs> I know. I'm, I go out and take a walk for an hour. Uh, it's my reflection time every day, mm-hmm. and then I come back and I try to spend anywhere from thirty minutes to forty to an hour reading. Uh, I've got a whole rash of books I'm reading through simultaneously, including a really really good book that David recommended to me a couple three weeks ago. I'm still going through it. Um. Oh, I have a copy of that for Kyle too. His yeah, it's a great son. book. It's a great book. You're going to love his it, Kyle. His first son great is going to be born. Look, I don't, I don't think I've it. given it to you. Have I? No, no I've no. received exactly zero books from you. Oh, you're going to okay. love this book. It's a great book. So, yeah, it's called, it's called Raising a Modern Day Night. It's, it's about awesome. Raising, oh, cool. Raising, awesome. The ceremony of raising a son. Pretty apropos. Yeah. And then uh, I try my best. Um, I'm not, I haven't mastered this yet, but I have a goal to get to a point to where I only look at my email three days, three times a day. And it's, really hard, <laughs> but, but I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm finding these, 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 these activities in my day that are productivity wreckers and, and email is the biggest one. I mean, it just completely wrecks my day. Um, and then I, and I have one of the things I am doing, I'm working very hard on doing is I'm trying my best not to start my week before it's finished. And what I mean by that is on Sunday, I try to sit down and plan out what I'm going to do every day of the week. Or I call it my most valuable priorities for each day. Uh, so that I have some kind of a litmus test that I can measure my week against. So if I have these specific tasks that need to be completed, um, then, you know, I want to say on Wednesday, I need to get this done. Thursday, I need to get this done, whatever. You know, I I try to lay that out. Uh, If I don't do that, then what ends up happening is my clients or my employees or or, or a whole litany of other people will come in and, and reprioritize my day for me. You know, and if I have my priorities set down, if I have to get these things done, even if it's only one thing, you know, uh, Jim Rohn, one of my most favorite 
authors. I love this guy. He's just got a phenomenal series of books and tapes and whatever you want to read and listen to. He talks about how, you know, if you got to be, if you got to be focused on being a, a, not a task oriented person, but a results oriented person. And, and one of the, one of the big challenges that IT professionals have is that we are hardwired to be task oriented. You know, we just, you know, I got to get these 19 things done. Well, no, I mean, you might got these 19 things done, but what did they do? Did any of those things actually help you make any headway on achieving the goals that you've written down? And of course, then I get the response. Well, I don't have any goals. Well, there's your first problem. You know, what are your goals? What do you want to achieve? You know, measurable goals. And so I, I'm working very hard to, to, to make sure that my day is results oriented and not task oriented. And uh, which is not easy, you know, because in, again, in IT, it's 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 very very much task you know oriented. Um, so and it's an ongoing process. It's 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 tough as nails. I call it staying out of the weeds of life. You know, I try to stay at like 39,000 feet plus every day. Stay out of the weeds because when you get down to the weeds, you can't see anything. All you can see is the weeds around you. You know, but if you stay at thirty nine thousand feet plus. Your perspective is completely different. Now you see everything out there, how everything blends together and how it works. Um, that's critical. And it's hard to do as a CEO of a small company. Uh, and that's one of my primary objectives I have right now is to continue to grow my company so I can delegate more and I can spend more time at 39,000 feet and just keep growing the company. So hope that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. Listen, man, it's um, we're going on an hour, pretty much time to wrap up, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to – let everybody know how they can get a hold of you if they want to talk to you about what Diversacom might be able to do inside of their company. Um, so this is your infomercial for as long as you oh, want to you. be. Thank you. Um, contact me directly, scott at diversacomcorp.com. Um, my, my phone number, 813-677-3312. Our website is uh, – uh, www.diversacomcorp.com. Um, do it if you just do um, a Google search on just type in Diversacom and start spelling it. You know, however you want, it's going to come up Diversacom. You know, we've been around for so long. You know, we, we come up usually first 15 to 20 searches in the Google, you know. Um, but uh, I, one of the things I, I'm really good at and one of the things I can do to really help a company grow uh, is um, I'll be glad to come out and talk to you about how. Uh, cybersecurity and the cyber criminal industry is, is potentially can impact your business. That's a great way for me to, to, to get an opportunity to share with you some of the things that you might be struggling with or afraid of and help pull away that veil of mystery. You know, most, most business owners today are absolutely terrified of that. I mean, as David can attest. Uh, so that's a good way that I can get involved with you too. Well, it's crazy, man. They're terrified or they're not. You know what I mean? Yeah, you it's probably, you know, like, there's no gray area in that whole thing. There you is either, no gray area. You either believe there is a cybersecurity risk for every single business and every single person in the world, which I firmly believe there is. It's a matter of what you've done to mitigate that risk, but there's definitely risk there. Or you just think, oh, no, it's never going to happen to me. It's never going to happen to me. And then guess what? Next thing you know, boom, you're the one that's going to get wailed on. So what I'm going to tell you is in, a, in an effort to uh, provide some foreshadowing, that is a topic I definitely want you to come back and we're going to devote an entire episode we to can talk about that. Yeah. I, I know, I know your capabilities of going for an hour on that. So yeah. listen, I really appreciate you being on today. Thank I you. hope that uh, if anybody is in the area with where Scott services, 
you still sticking around Tampa? I know at one point you had we, talked about maybe expanding. I'm not are. exactly. We have clients in the Mid South area. We have clients as far north as uh, Alabama now. Uh, we have clients up in the Panhandle. Um, we we have we have some clients potentially up in the Midwest. You know, so uh, geographically we're not really that isolated. Uh, some of my several of my existing clients have offices all over the country. So some of my clients have offices in out in the West, in Texas, and in, in the Midwest, up in the upper Northeast area. So we don't because of the way the technology is managed today, it really doesn't take somebody on site to do much anymore. We pre-configure everything for our clients' remote sites, ship it out there, and if it, if it has to take a person to install it, we'll contract someone if we have to, or we'll just fly one of our guys out there to do. It. But it's pretty rare. Because most of the stuff now, we'll ship it out in, in these little cases. It look like stuff that you stick on an airplane that the musicians carry. And it's just mm-hmm. all pre-configured. You take the covers off of it, plug it in the wall, plug one connection into whatever the internet connection is there in the building, turn the thing on, and voila, it just works. So, um, so yeah, it doesn't really matter. But most of our – all of our hardcore marketing efforts are here in the, in the West Central Florida area primarily. That's where the bulk of all our clients' corporate headquarters are located is here in West Central Florida. Good deal. Well, listen, Scott, I, I know I can speak for Kyle as well. We appreciate you taking the time to spend with us today and to uh, talk about how you view technology. It's unique. Uh, hopefully some people took some things from this. I think that we went down a few different rabbit holes that I found to be valuable. And if nothing else, anytime you hear Scott and I get together and talk, you can walk away with a, a red letter reading list for sure. For sure. So, Absolutely. All right. Good deal. Well, I appreciate it, Scott. We will, uh, we're going to catch you on the flip side. Have a good afternoon. You too. Thank you. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.